Lisa and I were in Knoxville this week. We had a follow-up appointment with Darden's orthopedic surgeon. And um, he's got two rods in his right leg and a screw there in his wrist. And so it typical, you know, appointment. We went in and, and we were in the waiting room, then back in the room waiting for the doctor to come in and, and see him. And as you'd expect, <laughs> within a few minutes, they came in and got Darden and said, we need to go to do some x-rays because I need to see what, what this thing looks like. I don't know, 10 minutes later, comes, you know, uh, Darden comes back five minutes after that. The doctor comes in, and he comes in with these, you know, just like HD black and white images, you know, of the inside of his leg. That which we can't see with the, the naked eye. I mean, you go and you sit under that machine, it just makes a little noise. You don't even know anything happened. And here are these pictures. Now, those of you in the medical community, those of you who look at x-rays all day long are like, oh, gosh, this is so boring. Those of us who don't, I mean, think about it. I mean, it, it fascinates me. Like, that's the inside of his leg. I mean, there's a Phillips head screw in his knee, you know, and just craziness like that. It's Amazing that we can see things that can't be seen with the naked eye with just a little bit, not a little bit, with a significant technology, isn't it? And I want to say that because the, the Bible is sort of the, the, an x-ray spiritually for us, x-ray machine in this way. When you and I look at the world through the lens of the scripture, we see things that cannot be seen with the naked eye. And according to the Bible, the things that we can't see with our eyes are more important than the things we can. Is that not what Paul says? 2 Corinthians 4.18, he writes to the Corinthian church. They're, they're struggling. They're, they're suffering. He says, don't lose heart. And then he says, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are are eternal. You tell me the contrast he's making. What's the, the value difference between the temporal and the eternal? How much, you know, is it a little? It's eternally different in terms of value. Now, we're beginning a book today, the book of Esther. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. The book of Esther, right before um, Job, you know, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you get to the Psalms, you've gone too far. Old Testament, the book of Esther. And this, this book is like, uh, it, it's, it demonstrates the x-ray nature of the scripture, like no other book in the Bible, I mean, truly. Uh, the, like no other book we read, it, it, uh, it enables us to see the unseen. And what I would propose is, we cannot live with hope if we don't have x-ray vision, so to speak. You can't live with hope, you see, because to live with hope is to look past what's real, but it's all I can see, to what's behind that which I can see. And I'm going to tell you this, the book of Esther equips us to do this very thing. Now, I'm going to give us an introduction. That's all I'll do today. I'm going to introduce the book of Esther. Y'all, we're going to be in this thing for 15 weeks, so, so we'll be going deep as we move through the book itself. What I want to do is three things. I'll give you three categories that I'm going to walk us through. We're going to talk about the historical setting. We're going to talk about the story, and then we're going to talk about the lesson. When I say lesson, singular, it's really two lessons, theological and practical, but it's, put them together, it's the lesson. You with me? So there's the outline I'm going to move us through, historical setting, 
the story, and then the lesson. Historical setting. Uh, the, the time that, that this book occurs and, and these events are unfolding is a time when Israel has been in, 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 in a civil war for, for many, many generations. Um, we always start a book by noting not just when it took place historically in, in history, but where it fit in the Bible, like where in redemptive history. It helps us understand it. Well, this is a time when these tribes, you know, it's the northern tribe and the southern, it's Israel and Judah. Just so you know, this has always confused me too, but just know after David, his great-grandson Rehoboam split the kingdom, because it's Israel, you know, and it goes by other names like Jacob, but it's Israel, the nation of Israel is one nation. Rehoboam splits the nation so that there's 10 northern tribes called Israel in the Bible, and then there's the two southern tribes called Judah, which is, again, always confusing to me. But they have warred for generations. It is a time when they have utterly rebelled, disregarded God. There's just blatant idolatry. It, 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 is, it is really, really bad. Now, God had told them, he said, now, if, when you go in this promised land and I make you a nation, if you'll follow me, everything will go well. If you don't follow me, it, follow me, it will not go well with you. And we just sang that God's a promise keeper, and he kept his promise, and he promised he would disperse them, and he did. So I'm not going to give you a ton of dates, but in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came along and obliterated the ten northern tribes. And then about 150 years later, the Babylonians, the Persian Empire, they came and they took the two tribes, and they took them into exile. So they removed them from the land, brought them to Persia. Are you with me? We are in the historical timeline, get this in your mind's eye, we are about 500 years before Christ. So this is when all of this is occurring. Now, we need to think about these historical realities uh, in light of God's promises, in light of redemptive history. God promised way back in the Genesis and in the fall, that he, in, in, in Genesis 12, that he would send a savior through the nation of Israel. So I always describe it as like Israel's the womb through whom the Messiah is going to come. Well, keep that in mind. So there's got to be a nation so that the Messiah can come from that nation. Okay, we know that. And then secondly, go back to Genesis 1, in particular Genesis 12, when we were studying Abraham. Do you remember we said that God's original intent, you know, God, it, it was, is, always will be, is a people of God in the place of God with access to the presence of God. Okay, those three things. Now think about this. That sounds like Eden. It was. They forfeited Eden. That sounds like heaven. It is, but we're not there yet. We're between those, aren't we? This is God's intention, a people of God in the place of God with access to the presence of God. Now, think about the historical setting I just described where the nation is at this time. The people of God have been annihilated or exiled. So, so we've got no people of God. Where's the promise? How's this going to happen? Where's the Messiah going to come from? They're not even there. How about the place of God? Think of the promised land. Who's in the promised land? God's people or someone else? Someone else. How about the presence of God? When I say presence of God, think Jerusalem and think the temple. Because you see, the temples where our relationship with God, their relationship was mediated. This is where they, they came, God was, and this is where they met. What's going on in the temple in these days? 
nothing. It is a time that historians have called the darkest days in the history of Israel. And you can see why. And don't miss this. If it's dark days for them, it's the darkest days for the whole world. The whole world just doesn't know it. Well, in this time frame, we get the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Okay, so get this in your mind's eye. This is historically and in our Bibles when these stories are occurring. Because right in those darkest days, God makes a way for, the, for these Jews to go back to Jerusalem. And they go back in three different waves they return. The first wave's in Ezra. When we read the book of Ezra, a group goes back. Then there's a gap in Ezra 6 and 7. It's 58 years long. Like between chapter 6 and 7, there's a 58-year gap. Then another group goes, then a gap, and then Nehemiah takes some others. The book of Esther happens in the 58-year gap between chapter 6 and 7 of Ezra. This is when this story is unfolding. And we think the story unfolds probably somewhere over about over a decade, okay? Now, the story's going to present a problem, you know, as if they don't have enough. It's going to present a a, a problem for every Jew in Babylon, every Jew who's returned back to Jerusalem. An enemy arises who sets out to, to destroy the Jews. This is the bottom line. We'll talk about this in a moment. But here's a question they are asking. The Jews that are in Babylon and the Jews that have gone home, they're going to have this question in light of this great challenge and problem. God, are you here? Do you care? And can I trust you to use even these events for our good and your glory? That's the question that will just lay upon them. And I think their historical situation is a lot like ours. Well, how can it be a lot like ours? Well, in this way, I don't think it's inappropriate to go here. Please understand, if you know Christ, if you've placed your faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, you're a child of God, please know you live in a foreign land. Uh, This earth is not home. You're not there yet. And, and, and home, by the way, is under the rule of someone we don't want it to be under the rule of, per se. And the enemy of our souls is out to destroy our faith. You see, this is where we live today, you and I. Such that I believe there's not a person looking at me right now who hasn't asked the question or who won't ask the question between Now and your homecoming. God, are you here? God, do you care? God, can I trust you that you're going to use this for my good and your glory? So I think that's relevant for you and me today. Well, that's a historical setting, dark days. Let's go to the story, the story. I don't want us to miss the obvious. A few preliminary comments. It's a story. Uh, This is not a New Testament letter. Uh, You don't read it the same way. We don't apply it, interpret it the same way. This is not apocalyptic literature like the book of Revelation that we were just in. A lot of symbolism, a lot of crazy stuff going on. What makes sense of that? Uh, It's not a poem. It's not uh, parallelisms and hyperbole. It's a story. When we want to understand and interpret a story, let's keep this in mind, we don't read the first chapter and judge it. 
you know, don't judge a book by the cover. Don't judge a story by one chapter. See, we've got to have the whole story in mind, and then we can understand the parts. That's why I want to give us an overview, a quick overview. Uh, it is a story which means all stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Okay? It'll take you 20 minutes to read the story, by the way, and it will do wonders for um, your understanding as we go through this over 15 weeks. I'm going to tell the beginning, the middle, and the end. Now, now tell me this. How many of us, and I, I know it's most of us, so just let me, how many of us are somewhat familiar with the story of Esther? Seriously, raise your hand. Just, if you're not, it's okay, but you know, most are, if you've been reading your Bible or been around the Bible much, most are. So I'm going to, it's a very high flyover. I, was, I picked up my daughter last night uh, from a babysitting job, and we were driving home, and she said, what, Dad, what are you teaching tomorrow? I said, I'm going to do the book of Esther. And, I, and she says, oh, I know the book of Esther. I said, really? You know the story of Esther? She goes, yeah. And so all the way home, she told me the story of Esther. I had no idea Esther was about vegetables, but apparently it's was, you know, gets banished to the island, or, but she actually knew the story and that it wasn't vegetables, but thank God for Veggie Tales because it does tell the story in a wonderful way. Now, I want to go through the beginning, the middle, uh, and the end, beginning, chapters one and two. We are in, by the way, always keep, you know, we're in Persia. We're in the capital city of Persia, massive empire, modern-day Iran, okay? Everybody got that in your mind's eye. Chapters 1 and 2 are the beginning. I just want to read the first five verses, Esther 1, verse 1. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus. By the way, when we were studying this together as a teaching team, we couldn't say it. We didn't know how to say this. And we were arguing, how do you say it? I don't know how do you say the guy's name. But, you know, the Greek name Xerxes. And so I thought about just calling Xerxes. That comes out way easier than Ahasuerus. You got to go, achoo. That's how I remember it. Achoo. You know, Ahasuerus. And you got to get used to the name because it's, it's repeated over and over and over. The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. We begin the story introduced to one of the most powerful men on the planet in that day, King Ahasuerus. Uh, he is the king of kings of his day, and he shows it with this extravagant banquet. Now, this stuff really happened, okay? So think, who throws a banquet for six months. <laughs> I mean, somebody's got a massive ego and he's got a massive stuff, you see. But he did. And when we read it, Bill, take us through it next week. It's amazing the extravagance of the story. He goes for six months, their party celebrating. And then at the end, he decides he's going to go seven more days. Let's, hey, let's go seven more. We've gone six months. Let's do seven days here in the city. And he continues with that party. Now, his name or reference to him as king occurs all throughout Esther. In fact, someone said it somewhere along the lines of, you know, there's 167 verses. His name's 100, it's, or is his name or the word king is mentioned 192 times. Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, the king, the king, the king, Ahasuerus. It's just over and over and over. Like, like he's the king, king, king. You see, that's the, the feeling we get from the story. And then most of you do know this, I think, that 
in the book of Esther, the name of God is mentioned how many times? None, right? What, what's going on with that? You see, that he's telling us a story, and you're going to see in the story these massive contrasts, and this, 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 and these massive reversals. It starts here, and then it ends here. God's name never mentioned in the book of Esther. The only other book would be the Song of Solomon, where God's name is not mentioned. Now, he mends the party, into the party. He's probably you know, pretty inebriated. Who knows what's going on at this thing at and he, he decides he wants to have the queen come. And so he calls, commands Queen Vashti to come and wear her crown. Now, there's commentators, people look at this, and they, they read, you know, she, they want her to come, you know, nude or just with a crown or to display or dance. Or, we don't know, okay? Here's what we know. The king, I mean, this guy's got power, commanded his wife to come. And she didn't. And she lost the crown. And what ensues then is this uh, Persian beauty pageant where, where they gathered all the virgins in Persia and they, they brought them to the king's palace and, and they were there for 12 months of beautification. And, and then after that time, they would go in and they would each spend one night with the king. And it's exactly what you think. They're going to go in and have sex. I mean, this is, this is, they're going to go to the king. He's going to see, did I like that or not? Do I like her? I, and, and they're going to go through, and the one that he likes is going to make queen. There is so much wrong <laughs> in this story. It's like, oh, my gosh. But there's, there's, there's so much theological and biblical truth that we get from the story and the events as they unfold. This is going to happen in every section. Things happen and you go, why Esther? Why not some other girl? Why the, why the Jewish orphan of all people? Why it says that Esther had favor? Why did she have favor? What made her better than someone else that the attendant looked on her with favor? Kind of gave her the secret code. When you go in to see the king, take, you know, whatever. It's like something's going on behind the scenes, isn't it? All through the story. That's the beginning, chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 through 8 would be the, the middle section. Now, the, the Jews uh, celebrate a feast. This is what I'll talk about at the end um, that, that, that is tied to this story here. And they celebrate it to this day. Okay, you're going to celebrate this and they're going to read this story. Now, you've got to think of a character in the story, Haman, as absolutely despicable to every Jew. And we're going to see why in a moment. So when when they read this story, they actually have noisemakers and they boo and they hiss when Haman's name is mentioned. And so I'm going to ask you to do the same. We'll pump a little energy in the room, okay, when I read this. So you go with me on this. I'll read it. This is how they would do it. They do it today. Um, after these events, so, so Esther is made queen, okay, we get that. And a couple little details go on there. We'll read later. Then verse 1, chapter 3. After these events, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman... Yeah, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and established his authority over all the princes who were with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage. Then the king, no, no, hold on. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why are you transgressing the king's command? 
Now it was when they had spoken daily to him that he would not listen to them, they told Haman to see whether Mordecai's reason would stand for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman... Yeah, y'all are losing energy. This guy's really bad. Saw that Mordecai neither bowed down nor paid homage to him. Haman! Yes, he was filled with rage, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him who the people of Mordecai were. Therefore, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Okay, now. Don't boo when I say Haman, because I did this first service, and I said Haman off the cuff, and someone started booing in the back and distracting. <laughs> we'll stop there, okay? But, boy, why would they hate him so? Well, why wouldn't they? This really happened. This man, Haman, becomes second in charge, and there's one Jew. You talk about overkill. Maybe this is where the word came from, overkill. I mean, one Jew won't bow down to him, and so instead of, I don't know, eliminating the one Jew, I go... I'm going to destroy your whole nation. Now, we would sit here and go, that couldn't happen unless you you don't know history, right? Of course it did. And even in our history, it did, you see. So Haman, you you, you want to boo and hiss. I mean, this guy is the epitome of of evil. And so Haman, uh, he he, he determines that there's going to come a day they write an edict to all the, 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 the country, and this edict tells everyone who's a Persian citizen, on this day, if you know a Jew, kill them, men, women, and children. We're going to annihilate and get rid of the Jews on this day and take all their stuff. Of course, we would boo and hiss and be repulsed by this, this man. Now, the story's going to turn as all good stories build up to this tension, and then they turn, they swift, and the story's going to turn on what Esther does with the king. Esther's now queen. So what is Esther going to do with the queen? And her, her cousin, older cousin Mordecai is raised her, and Mordecai says, look, you're not going to survive this either. You need to talk to the king. And here in chapter 4, turn there, verses 13 and 14, we get probably the most famous verses, memorable verses in the story itself. Esther has not been invited to see the king in 30 days. That's a, that's a sign that he doesn't want to see her right now. And it's very real as she faces death if you go in to see the Persian king unannounced, uninvited. You don't do that unless he extends the golden scepter, which we know he does. But notice... Uh, The words in verse 13, chapter 4, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Hold on to that. You're there for such a time as this. Well, the middle sections, all the tensions being resolved, worked out, and we do know that uh, the Jews deliver themselves. You know how that story ends, so to speak. But we come from the beginning, middle to the end, and, and the end after being delivered, delivering themselves, the the Jews, or Mordecai himself, sends another proclamation out, and this one institutes a feast. I want you to go to chapter 9, and I want you to look at verse 20. Chapter 9, verse 20. The story's ending. 
Then Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the, all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to celebrate the 14th day of the month Adar and the 15th day of the same month annually. Because on those days, the Jews rid themselves of their enemies, and it was the month which was turned for them from sorrow to gladness and from mourning to holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and rejoicing and sending portions of food to one another and gifts to the poor. In a brilliant way, the writer has brought us full circle, which good stories do. Do you remember how the story began? What was the beginning? A banquet! And now how does the story end? How does it end? A, a banquet, a festival. But please note it's for very different reasons by very different people. And this is the thing that happens in the story of Esther. It starts here, and these guys are here, and it ends. These guys are here, and these guys are here. It starts this guy's first, and this guy's last, and it ends. Well, this guy's last, and this guy's first. This thing's just happening all throughout the story. The feast that they're celebrating is called, I, I can't pronounce this well, forgive me, but I, it's like Purim, but it's spelled P-U-R-I-M. You know, it's transliterated that way. So, you know, I just want to talk like Tennessean and just call it Purim, Purim, you know, but I know it's not that, but it's Purim. Um, when Haman was deciding, when am I going to kill the Jews? When am I, I'm going to pick a day out here when everyone's going to kill Jews. And what the Persians did, this they did this normally at the beginning of the year, in the first month of the year, they would, they would roll the P-U-R, okay? So that's where they get the Purim. They would roll the lot, the dice. They would roll the, you know, again, I say it per. They would roll that, and then numbers would come up, and they would basically fill their calendar in with the important dates, when this is going to happen, when that's going to happen, based on the roll of the die. And it says in 3-7 that, that, he, that, that um, Haman had all the, People roll the die, roll the, and it's like day after day. In other words, it's like, I want to kill the Jews tomorrow. Roll the die. Dang it. Not tomorrow. I want to kill them next week. Roll the die. Dang it. <laughs> it's like he kept rolling the die. And how about this? When they finally got the die to go right, it was the 12th month. Now you think about that. And why, why, did the die roll, why did the die roll different every day? And then that one day they rolled and it was the 12th. This story's just got all this stuff in it. Why, you know, the sleepless night, and then and then you wake up to find something to read, and it's like reading, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. It's just unbelievable throughout the story. It's full of these, you know, coincidences. Uh, it just so happened that it reminds me. I, I think about this. I know everyone, you know, doesn't have this or do this, but those of you in offices, maybe you, you, you know, when you have a problem with your computer, you know, I got a problem with my computer, and you know, the the, the IT service, you know. Uh, they're remote, they're, stand, they're somewhere in that, who knows where they are, but they take over my computer. Have you ever had your computer taken over and you watch it and the guy's working on it and your arrow's moving around? You're going, oh my gosh, man, the guy's in my computer working and the keyboard starts typing things up there, not your keyboard, but words are coming up. It's, when you read this story, it's like, it's like, oh my gosh, what's, there are chess pieces moving and there's no hand moving them all throughout the story, the, the setting, it's a very, it's a dark day. The, the story itself, beginning, middle, and end, this, these tensions resolve, these reversals, this king that can't get enough of himself, and the king we love and adore is absent. And then the end, the festival. How about the lesson? Okay, the lesson. I got a 
theological and a practical. The theological lesson of Esther. This, this thread runs through it. It holds the whole thing together, gives meaning to it. It's built upon a doctrine, okay? And it's the doctrine of providence. The doctrine of providence, Latin word pro vide, pro before see. To, to, to see before, to provide, to make the way before, to know you, all, all of that, to provide providence. Um, I'm going to give you a couple definitions. We're going to be talking about this for 15 weeks. And so we'll come at it at different angles, like a gym you'd hold and see it in different ways. But let me give you some, and, and you don't need to write these down. These will be on the website, so you can just look up at the screen and, and read these with me. Karen Job, in her excellent commentary uh, on Esther, says this, When we speak of God's providence... We mean that God, in some invisible and inscrutable way, governs all creatures, actions, and circumstances through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. I think it's a very good definition. You know, when they're good definitions, every word matters. I had someone say to me last night, they, they mentioned, well, what, you know, they got into what's the difference between sovereignty and providence. I really don't have time to, to, to go real deep in that. And, and, and by the way, because I'm not very deep, quite frankly, on it. But I can say this, you know, we think of sovereignty. Yes, sovereign is, is dominion. He rules over all. Providence is, is how that rule is expressed. Okay, this is how it's worked out. His sovereign dominion is his works of providence is how it's all worked out. That's what we see in this definition and if the Bible, you know, says anything and Lindsay read Isaiah, that was a statement of God's providence that she read earlier at the beginning from the end, I know. How about this one, Psalm 135, 5 to 6. The psalmist says, For I know that the Lord is great. Our Lord is greater than all gods. He does whatever he pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. As, high, as far high as you can go, as low as you can go, as deep as you can go, as wide as you can go, wherever, anytime, at every time, God does as he pleases. This is God's working out of his purpose and plan as he pleases. I often go to the Westminster Shorter Catechism on some doctrinal things and reminders to help me embrace and hold them. Many of you have grown up in this tradition, maybe a Presbyterian tradition, and you did. The question on God's providence, I think it's question 10, but Westminster Shorter Catechism, what are God's works of providence? And then, you know, catechism, you teach yourself this by memorizing and answering the question. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Now, I want you to look at that for a moment. God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Do you believe that? I mean, it's got hard edges on it, trust me. But this is what the Bible teaches. God's in control. Yeah, but not God's in control. Rules and reigns. By his works of providence, he governs and preserves all his creatures, all their actions. 
me say this. If you've placed your faith in Christ and you are a child of God, you believe Jesus died on the cross for you, was buried and raised again. He's your Savior. You trust him, what he's done, he's done for you. Please know, as a child of God, you are never where you are by accident. You are never facing something by chance. Not if we believe this, God's providence. Well, sure, it raises questions, but well, the questions don't diminish the truth. We'll come back to this over and over and over again. It means whatever's going on in your world right now, good, bad, ugly, all it's not an accident. That's the theological lesson. How about the practical lesson of Esther? And again, we'll have so many as we go through this. I take this from Karen Job's definition of providence. She states in the back end of it that God's work of providence is through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of the miraculous. Now, some may disagree along these lines, but I, I agree with this in this way. Someone said to me last night, well, is, if God does a miracle, isn't that still within his providence? Yes. What I think the definition gets right and gets well is how God's work of providence generally expresses itself and works itself out. Think of the story of Esther. God is silent. You know, you can't find him in there, per se. Silent. Invisible. And there are no miracles. There, there's, there's, you know, God can do a miracle, a miracle being where he's going to interrupt the natural laws of the universe, pause them, do something, then put them back together and gravity works again. You see, there are no miracles. There's no supra, super beyond natural in the book of Esther. What are we to make of that? Well, I think this is what we make of it. This is how God normally works. This is how God's working today. This is how God has normally worked in the history of redemption. You know, we come to the Bible and we think that God was always doing the supernatural thing. No, he wasn't. People lived generations and never saw a miracle. All through the Bible. The normative work of God, this is no less amazing, is working through the normal and ordinary course of human life without the intervention of of the miraculous. Think about this. These are the darkest days in Israel's history. It's almost like I kind of go, boy, if, the, if they ever needed to see the Red Sea parted, it, surely it's now when it's all gone. And what happens? An ordinary Jewish orphan girl gets made queen and her, her, her cousin won't bow to this guy. And it's just like, you know what happens? Life unfolds. And they make choices. And God is working out his purpose and his plan. And if you think he's not doing that in your life, literally in your specific life, then you misread the Bible. Because he's at work in your life and mine in the same way. He's God. This is how he works. Which means there's 
There's nothing in your life that doesn't matter right now, how you respond to it. There's just not. You know, it's not like we all have to go, man, I'm going on a mission trip this summer. You're on a mission trip right now. You're on a mission trip every day you get up. You're you're a child of the king, and he's got events in your world, and you have an opportunity to respond in faith and faithfulness or not. There you go. And through it all, you see, God, who is in control, governs and orchestrates and works out his purposes and his plans. The silence of God in Esther is consistent with the message of Esther. God is working out his purposes as he normally works out his purposes, silently, invisibly, and imperceptibly to all except those with faith. And by the way, God is still, I mean today, putting his people in the right place at the right time for his purpose. You are, you, every day, God puts you in the right place at the right time for his purpose. What do we do with that? You are never where you are by chance. Never. Christian Reformed theologian um, R.B. Kuyper. I read this, this has been a year or so ago. I was reading something he was talking about sovereignty. You know, kind of the same th- topic we're on. And uh, he described his, uh, his thoughts on sovereignty as, he, he said it's like these, this rope that goes up into heaven and it comes back down and there's two strands to this rope. So I'm borrowing Kuyper's uh, illustration, just adapting it, and, and I'm going to go along the lines of the two strands of, uh, of God's providence. And so what you've been staring at over here with this rope, you know, this was not what Haman's going to hang himself on, so you, you won't see this uh, next week. Some of you think, I bet that's going to be the hanging thing. It'd have to be a lot higher, by the way, what he ended up getting himself hung on. But I want you to think about God's providence in this way. As Kuiper described it, it's it, a, a rope that goes up into heaven It goes over a pulley and comes back down, and there are two strands. And when you think about providence and our our journey through Esther, the the title of the series is Veiled Providence, Visible Face. Providence is veiled, you can't see it, but faith is real because they make faith choices. There are two strands. Now, I'm going to say this a couple times. How many ropes are there? How many? One. But how many are there fit that you see? See, that's the, con- the conundrum. So the, 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 there's one rope. But from an earthly perspective, we, we've got these two. Now, you can grab one. God's invisible. I can't see him. But God's in control. So you know what? God's going to do everything. I don't have anything to do. And I tell you, when you grab that rope and it's the storm's blowing and you hope you hang on, trust me, the storm will blow and you'll blow. If the river's rising and you need to get above it, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to hold you. You can grab the truth, you see, but you're not grabbing the whole truth and you will live with no hope. Or if you grab the visible faith and go, well, it all, it's all up to me. You know, I've got to do this. I can, I will. It, it, it's, it, it's, it's me that brings us about. Then let me tell you, when the, when the storm blows, it'll blow with you. When you need to go above the storm, you can pull all you want and hold, and it won't hold you, you see. Well, the life of faith and the doctrine of providence reminds us, veiled providence, visible faith. Mordecai and Esther 
They, they trusted that God was at work, and she went to see the king. You see, you take both. Now, here's the thing. When you take both, right, if I grab both of these, then when I'm needing to rise above the stormy waters, then it holds. When the storm blows and I'm blown with it, it holds. Grab one, it doesn't. That's, that's all I want you to see. And always keep in mind that while we see, wait, is it, is it God's responsibility or mine? Grab them both, you see. God reigns. I'm faithful. Now, when you're holding both of these, and you ask the question, does God care? God, are you here? You see that? When you're holding both, what's the answer? Yes. Not only, you can say, I mean, it might be a whisper. You can say, you're here. You care. And yes, you'll use even this in my life for my good and your glory. It's just one rope. The providence of God. Grab them both. So what? Well, what, what do we do with what God is saying? You know, that's a question for you and for me. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads. And just in this moment, would you ask God, in light of, in light of what Esther tells us and the story will tell us, and in light of the circumstances you're facing now, maybe you just need to ask God, God, help me see your invisible hand. Or maybe you need to recognize, you know what? God is in control of all things. And my choice really matters in this. I'll invite you in this moment to talk to God about how he's speaking to you. Father, thank you for this story of Esther in which in an amazing way we're privileged to see your invisible hand at work and to see how that hand's actually made visible through our faithfulness and our faith. We thank you that we know your story cannot be thwarted and that we get to participate in it. That you are in control of all things and our choices really matter. God, help us to understand and see that when we embrace your providence, every moment of life is infused with significance. It matters.
The amazing thing is it matters forever when we're trusting you. Help us to do so. In Christ's name, amen.